I will be reading from 1 Peter, chapter 1, verse 22, to chapter 2, verse 3. Having purified your soul by your obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love, love one another earnestly from a pure heart, since you've been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable, through the living and abiding word of God. For all flesh is like grass, and all its glory like the flower of the grass. The grass withers, and the flower fails, but the word of the Lord remains forever. And this word is the good news that has been preached to you. So put away all malice, all deceit, all hypocrisy, and envy, and all slander. Like newborn infants, long for the pure spiritual milk, that by it you may grow up into salvation, if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. It is a privilege um, to worship God. That's what Peter calls us to. Uh, right in the beginning of the book, he says, worship, he says uh, praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. He calls us to worship him. And, and then if you remember... Um, from last week, he began to tease out the implications of this great God. In other words, he, in the first, you know, verses 3 to 12 is one Greek sentence. And in those verses, he just kind of outlines this incredible salvation that we have. In other words, he's calling us to worship, and then he fills our tank with reasons to worship. He doesn't just call us to worship. He says that we've been born again to a living hope, and we have been given an imperishable inheritance. And, and, and the promise, the very promise of God is that he will keep us because we cannot keep ourselves. He will keep us. And so given that great salvation, all according to God's great mercy, right? So God gets all the praise, he gets all the honor because he's done all the work. But then what he does is Peter says, what are the implications here? And then we looked last week at 13 to 21 and he drew three things, more of a vertical picture of how we handle God. He says, first, set your hope uh, on the grace to be revealed on that day of the revelation of Jesus Christ. So that's our response. So God has given us massive grace. We now respond out of the overflow of joy, not under a burden of responsibility or pressure, but out of pure joy. This is what he's done for us. So set your hope on that grace that's yours. But he also says, be holy as I am holy. And he says, conduct yourselves in fear, because I am both father and judge, that beautiful tension that Nathan was praying about. But he has more implications to draw out. We're still talking about the salvation, this new birth. The father has caused us to be born again, is what he said. And so we went from the vertical, now we're going to horizontal. The two implications here are that we are to love one another earnestly, and we're to long for, we're to be long for that milk that will grow us up in our salvation. But we do this together, we do this corporately. This isn't done individually. But we're to love one another, and we're to long together to grow up in salvation. Those are the two points of the sermon, very, very simple. To love one another earnestly. I think that's pretty clear, you understand that. He says a sincere brotherly love. The word for sincere really is, is without hypocrisy. It's not an outward show. It's more of an inward desire. That our love that we are to exhibit 
and exercise towards one another is not for the masses, it's for the person that we're loving. But it's an earnest love. And that word for earnest is used in the world of athletics. It's speaking about the athlete who strives diligently, who, who is extending to his full might the use of all of his muscles. That our love to be exercised to one another is to be that significant that you are push, you're pushing, you're pushing yourself through this love. Not begrudgingly, but you're exercising all the gifts and energy and abilities you have to love one another. It's a deep, it's, a, it's an enduring love. It, it, it's, not like the, it's not like the love of the world. You know, it's temperamental and it's transient. It, it's driven by self-interest. It's driven by what do I expect back when I love you? No, th- th- this is a love that's altogether different. It, it isn't even rooted in how you feel, your affections towards the person, or, or how strong you feel emotionally. It's a, it's a love by choice. I'm going to love this person. Are they deserving of it? Maybe not, but I'm going to love this person. It's an act of the will in response to the gracious will of God to me and to you. So the Peter's first command, two commands in this whole passage, the first one is love one another earnestly. But you should be asking, after I give such a definition of love, how can I do that? I mean, really? And where do you see that being displayed right now? In your life, perhaps, or the lives around you? Because Peter doesn't furnish us a command without giving us encouragement to walk in it. And so look with me back, if you will, at 22, because he gives us two reasons. He brackets this command with two kind of ideas on how we can love one another. The first thing he says is, having purified your souls by obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love. So he's saying this, he's saying, you can love one another. You can do it because you've been purified. God has purified you. But let me explain this, because it can be confusing. Having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth. Peter is not saying that you are generating your own purity. He's not saying that. Uh, What he's saying, Peter is saying that your obedience to the truth is, is the response that you exercised to the call of God in repentance and faith. So when you heard the gospel proclaimed, Jesus saying, repent and believe, you repented and believed. You acted in obedience to the truth of the gospel being proclaimed. So that's what it's saying here, that that it's not a self-generated, it's more you responding, it's your initial act of submission by faith to the claims of the gospel. Let me give you a picture of this, if if you're having trouble following me. You have that scene where Jesus is outside the tomb of Lazarus, and Lazarus is in the tomb, and he's dead, right? He's going nowhere, and he has no plans. He's just there. So Jesus stands outside the tomb, and he says, Come forth, Lazarus. And what happens? Lazarus responds. He was dead, now he's alive. The word of Christ, the command which carries with it power, to obey. The command goes in, it gives life, Lazarus comes walking out. Lazarus responds in faith to the call of Christ. And so the same for us, that this this being purified by your obedience to the truth, he's saying that God has purified us from sin, he's forgiven us because we responded to his call for grace. But look, note that it's for a sincere brotherly love. The, the new birth that God gives to us in Christ 
is not simply to drag you out of hell and put you into heaven. It's for now a sincere brotherly love. Does it save you from judgment of God? Absolutely. But the purpose of your salvation, the purpose of your purification, right now is that you'll love one another. That you'll earnestly love one another with a sincere brotherly love. So this is the idea. It's it's the interaction between God and and the dead soul. It's God speaks to us, and then we obey, and through that we're purified. It's like like, uh, fire and heat. You know, you can't have any heat without fire. But if you build a fire and you put your hand near it, you know it immediately produces heat. They go together. God moves first. We respond with obedience to the truth of the gospel. So if you've been born again, then you can love. He's, given, he's purified you of all your sin. You're able to love one another earnestly, sincerely, for a sincere brotherly love. But look at the next reason he gives you. Uh, It's just on the other side of the command. Love one another earnestly from a pure heart. Since you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but imperishable through the living and abiding word of God. So Peter is, again, furnishing us another reason. This is why you can love one another, because you've been born again. Now listen, all of us have been born, if we're here, and most of us look somewhat alive, if, if if you're here, you have been born with perishable seed. The seed of man, procreation, life has been given to you. You and I are living and breathing right now. But we know that the life we have right now is perishing. We see it in our bodies. We see it all around us. That that we have been born of perishable seed. But what God does through the gospel is he gives life to us through an imperishable seed, a seed that will never fade away. It'll never be destroyed. It's imperishable. And this seed, this analogy that he's drawing here, is the word of God. It is coming to us, the living and abiding word. See, when God speaks, life forms. Right? By the word of God, the heavens were made. By the breath of his mouth, the starry hosts were formed. God speaks and life forms. A child can't determine when or where he or she will be born. A dead person can't determine when he or she will be raised. But when God speaks, life forms. And so he says that we've been born again through his living and abiding word. And then Peter hammers this home by going to Isaiah 40, 6 to 8. He says that all flesh is like the grass It's here today and it's gone tomorrow. He admits that our flesh may have momentary glory, no doubt about it. For some of you, it may have been a few years ago. For others, you might have to look back a few more years. But but all that, even the momentary glory, it goes away. But the word of God abides forever. There's an enduring nature. What this means is if you have been given new life by the word of God that endures, you will endure. You will endure. Now this to an A community in exile facing difficulty and challenge? Can you imagine the hope? They see people dying around them, but we have been born again by a living hope, a hope that will endure. Though the grass fades, we will never fade. God will make sure that happens. You will live forever. Those who have been born again, not of just perishable seed, but imperishable. Being born of water and born of the Spirit, Jesus would have phrased it in John chapter 3. 
you will live forever. Just remind yourself of that. Those who have been born again, you will live forever. This is only the beginning of eternal life for, for you. And do you notice what he says at the end of 25? He says, and this word is the gospel that was preached to you. This is the gospel, that great news, that incredible news. There is no greater promise you'll, you'll ever hear in this world that God would in mercy, in great mercy, choose to send a son uh, to come and dwell in flesh, bearing a curse that was ours to bear, but he bore it for us and suffered the punishment of the curse that we might receive the joy of acceptance and reconciliation with God. And by faith, we trust that. And what I mean by faith is we assent to its truthfulness and we rest in its provision. So no longer do we fight for God's favor, we enjoy God's favor. We love him and we live in light of the favor that he has already given to us. So, so th this is this, uh, the first command, love one another earnestly. You've been purified and you've been born again. People of God, you can love. You can love one another earnestly. Let me tease out, before I go to the next point, let me just tease out some implications to this. The first thing I would say is that if you have been born again and you have this new love, if you have this new love, then you want to put away all those things that undermine the love that we ought to enjoy in this community. And that's what he gets to in chapter 2, verse 1. He says, put away malice and deceit and hypocrisy and envy and slander. Put those things away. To put away, by the way, that, that has the idea of taking, you know, you remove clothes, you put them away when you're getting ready for bed. He's saying put away those behaviors. Those behaviors that Paul said, like put off the old man. Those behaviors associated with your old way of life. Why? Because it undermines the love that we have in this community. How does malice do that? Well, malice is speaking evil of people. It's, it's criticizing people. It's cutting them off at the knees. It's, it's saying harsh, mean things about other people. You can imagine how that would undermine any sort of communal love that we would have. Uh, or, or malice or deceit. I mean, think about trying to have a relationship with someone that it's constantly tinged by falsehoods, half-truths deceitful statements. I mean, you couldn't really trust anybody. Is, can I believe him or can I not believe him? It would undermine the love of a community when we are not making our yeses yes. Now, I realize that has to be nuanced with also being kind and saying things in a way that might be more readily accepted in terms of just blasting truth out. Uh, but this idea of deceit has a different idea. You're covering. You're covering through trickery and through falsehood. Or you look at the idea of hypocrisy. Hypocrisy is just putting on a pretense. It's putting on a falsehood. You, you're not being intellectually honest. You're not being truthful. You're trying to promote a reality in the mind of a person that is not reality in your life. And again, that would undermine the love for a community. The love for one another is difficult. If I don't know who I'm dealing with, how can I really love you? Am I loving you or am I loving the object or the image that you want to create about yourself? And folks, this is something we all struggle with to a degree or not. I mean, we all come walking in here looking very sharp. Now, I'm not saying we want to come in here with just hanging out with our issues, 
But, but, but that intellectual honesty that the Christian, let me just stop for a minute and say this, that I think only the Christian can be intellectually honest with who they are because we have a gospel to trust in. You know, we can really be able to say, yeah, this is who I really am. Let me, let me just remove all false brief. This is who I am. I struggle in these areas. Hope you'll, hope you'll accept me in spite of those things. You have the freedom to be that way because you know that you have been accepted by the one who's created all things because of the blood of the Son. So we have the honesty and the ability to do that. Other people will never be intellectually honest with you about themselves because they don't know if you'll accept them. And they're so desirous of being accepted that they have to put forth an image that appeals to you that you might love them. And that's a terrible way to live because you're always living with the falsehoods you're creating. So it's not just, let's get rid of the hypocrisy. Let's be honest with who we are. I tell you, I always find myself engendered to a person who can be clear about the struggle that they have. And I find that people, at least the words I've received for you, from you, is when I've shared uh, issues about struggles that I've had or Carol and I have had, that, that you feel closer to me. You, you feel that a kind of a wall's gone down. And yeah, you know what? We're on the same ground here. So I encourage that. That develops a love within the community but also this idea of envy. You know, envy is the idea that I am unhappy because you're happy. I, I'm not rejoicing over the good that you now have in your life. And can you imagine that undercuts the ability to love one another? Because if I can't rejoice with those who rejoice, then I'm hesitant to share the grace of God in my life that he's blessed me because you're suffering and there's envy and it creates all kinds of schism and conflict. And then last, slander is just the the attempting to ruin the name of another person or their status or their reputation. And you can just quickly imagine how that would undermine love. So, so the first implication is if we've been born again, if we've been purified, we can love one another. And loving one another means we want to get rid of this stuff. So here's what I would ask you to do. I would ask you first to appeal to God for grace to see if these are resident in your life. Just ask him. You know, ask him for wisdom. I always turn to Psalm 139 and 23 and 24 where David says, search me and try me, see if there is any wicked way in me and lead me to life everlasting. So ask him for wisdom and then perhaps ask somebody else. You know, because if you right now are harboring bitterness or anger, if you're harboring unforgiveness towards another person, you will not be able to love. These things impact directly at undermining your capacity to love. Ask somebody else. Pray to God, but ask a friend, a, a spouse, a close, a close friend. What of these five do you see in me? And then confess it. Confess it and think about the cross and dwell upon how he has forgiven you and ask for grace to put it away. You know, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, that Lutheran theologian that I mentioned last week, he uh, died at the end of World War II. He said this about community. He says, we don't have to create community. Thankfully, we don't have to create that. Uh, Christ has created community by dying for us. The Spirit draws us in. We are part of an eternal fellowship here. But we can threaten community. We can threaten it by allowing these traits and habits and practices to undermine that which the Spirit has created. Okay, and then, and then the second implication I would draw about loving one another is it really does, when you walk in exercising love for one another, and the love I'm talking about is 
is a sincere love, he says. And I've shared this illustration with you before, but it's helpful, so let me repeat it. You know, what sincere means, at least in Latin, is without wax. And it was, it was a commercial term used so that if you were a, a potter and you made a pot, and, and you, you'd put it out in the sun, you know, you're putting your, your product out there in the market to be sold, and you would put sincera on there without wax. And what that meant was that it's been sitting in the sun. So if I made a, a lousy pot that cracked in the kiln and I tried to fill it in with some wax that was colored so as to dupe you to think that it was a good pot but really had a crack in it that I'm covering with wax, well, if I stick it in the sun, the sun's going to melt the wax. And so what you see is what you get when, you put it in, when you're sincere. It's what you see is what you get. I'm putting on no... So if your love is sincere and earnest, then what this does is it confirms to you you have been born again. Do you see that? Who have you loved this way? Who have you loved earnestly by choice for the glory of God this week? Because this is what should confirm to us we have received new birth. Not the date in your Bible. Not an experience at some point where your hair stood up and some big miracle was told and you felt close to God. Those are great. I love those. They can be very legitimate. But, but these acts of sacrificial love, these are the things that say, I've been born again. Listen to what John says. So if you didn't take it from Peter, listen in 1 John. He says this, We know that we have passed out of death into life because we love the brothers and sisters. Now that's pretty clear, I think. He says, whoever does not love abides in death. Now this is a continuous way. This isn't you had a bad day and you got me. I'm, not, I'm talking about a continual pattern of life. He says, everyone who hates his brother is a murderer, and you know that no murderer has eternal life in him. Or in the next chapter, four. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God. Whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. This was one of the marks that the Puritans would use to discern the legitimacy of a conversion. Do they love other people? Not do they love their family. There's a natural benefit to loving your own family and sacrificing your own family. You do that for kids when your, your kids are absolutely misbehaving. You still love them, you feed them, you care for them. There's a natural connection there. But, but the evidence of God's spirit is when you can love someone who's not your family, who you won't receive an immediate benefit from. It's a confirmation to you, I've been born again, because people don't do this. But not only that, it's an apologetic to the world. When you and I, when we exercise love for one another, the world, it, Francis Schaeffer was a theologian in the 20th century, died in the early 80s, 1980s, he said this, love for one another is the final apologetic. The world cannot argue. Listen to what he said. He said, without true Christians loving one another, Christ says that the world cannot be expected to listen even when we give proper answers. Let us be careful indeed to spend a lifetime studying to give honest answers. For years, the Orthodox Evangelical Church has done this very poorly. So it is well to spend time learning to answer the questions of men and women who are about us. But after we have done our best to communicate to a lost world, still we must never forget that the final apologetic, which Jesus gives, is the observable love of true Christians for true Christians. That is an apologetic to the world. And the last thing I would say, evidence of new birth, producing a new love in you, is you would want others to also experience this new love. 
There's clearly a call for evangelism here. You know, you see it right in 25, he says this. He says, the word of God, um, he says, the second half of 25, and this word is the good news that was preached to you. Each one of you in here who has received new life from God by being born again, you heard the message preached from someone, somewhere, at some time. Every one of us here has a salvation that has come through another sinner. All of us have. So evangelism is clearly implicit in the text. You, um, evangelism is not optional. It's essential for each one of us. You know, St. Francis of Assisi, we love to quote him. Uh, he says, preach the gospel, preach the gospel, preach the gospel, and if necessary, use words. Let me just help Francis here for a minute. It's necessary. You need to use words. I love the quote. I love what it teaches, but it's necessary. We have to use words. It was preached to you. We need to preach it to others. I know some of you have more boldness than others, and I get that. Part of that's your temperament. Part of it's your faith. But let me remind you that being born again and having a new love means it's outside the world outside the family here, it's we love others. We want to know, we want others to enjoy and experience the love that we have for God. Okay, so that's love one another earnestly. Let me shift us to the second command. And you see this in verse 2 of chapter 2. Now just a quick sidebar here. Um, this is free. Uh, that, that sometimes, you know, the chapters that you have in your Bible were introduced in the 13th century. So when the scriptures were written, they weren't written by chapter and verse. They were introduced later to help people find, like, if where was that? You know, for God so loved the world. Well, I know it's in the Gospel of John. Well, where is it? Well, I think it's towards the front end, but I'm not sure. So they put in chapters to help us identify where texts were. The verses came in the middle of the 16th century, where each verse. And sometimes, you know, this, I would have, if I were doing the chapters and verses, I would have probably slid chapter 2 to begin with verse 2. But, but just so you know, when you're reading your Bible, that, that, that theme of thought weaves through. Those are just aids to us. They're not part of the divine inspiration of Scripture. Okay, so the second command, we have to love one another earnestly. The second implication of us being born again is that like newborn babes, newborn infants, we will long for the pure spiritual milk pure spiritual milk. So like newborn infants. Okay, let me help you with this comparison. Uh, again, Peter is drawing a contrast here. He is not saying that we're like newborn infants in terms of we're immature or we're new in the faith. He's not making that comparison. You will find that, by the way, in Hebrews and in 1 Corinthians. He does use infants as kind of a, a chastising of the Corinthian church. You should be further along by now. But he's not doing that here. He's using the idea of infants because infants are unabashedly, they will make noise at two in the afternoon, two in the, in the middle of the night, in the grocery store. When they want to be fed and when they need nourishment, they let you know. And he's saying that as Christians, we ought to be like newborn infants that are craving for the spiritual milk of life that God has for us. Uh, that we're to be longing for. That's what it is, like newborn infants long for the spiritual milk. This longing, this craving that I need, I mean, part of the evidence of new birth is I want, I desire, I love, I crave to know more of God. Now, of course, the question is, what's the spiritual milk he's speaking about? 
What is this nourishing milk? Well, it's a debate, but I think the context would indicate that it would at least be the word of God, that the word of God is the spiritual milk. But let me narrow it down a little bit more for you, because you see in the second half of 25, he says, and this word, that is the word of God, this word is the good news that was preached to you. So I think he's saying the spiritual milk is really the gospel because it's the, it's the crystal view of the goodness of God, which he's going to talk about in verse 3. That nowhere do you see the greatness of God more than in the gospel. The law displays the holiness of God, absolutely. Many of the prophecies display the wisdom of God, but in the gospel you see mercy and justice come together in perfect measure to save us. Incredible, we'll never, listen, in, in Revelation 5, what, what are the saints singing forever? Worthy is the lamb who was slain, and with his blood he purchased men and women for God, to be a kingdom of priests, to serve our God. So the gospel will always be the lens through which we see God in beauty and goodness. And so he says, long for the milk of the gospel, because by it we see the goodness of God. And do you see the longing has an end? The longing is the command. He's commanding us, long for this. But then he shows us the result of longing in the second half of that verse where he says, so that you may grow up in salvation. It's kind of an odd way of saying it. Many of us say, no, I was saved on December 14th. It was right here. But he says, you grow up into salvation. Now, I think the scripture teaches both. The scripture teaches that at one point we turn by faith to Christ. Some of us don't even know when that is, and that's fine. And God justifies us and accepts us. But there's this sanctifying, this progressive nature of salvation that we see right here, that we are to grow up into salvation. We grow into maturity through craving more of God's goodness, that it grows us up in salvation to see that he's good. Look at verse 3, if indeed you've tasted that the Lord is good. Why are they together? Like newborn infants long for the spiritual milk, Indeed, if you've tasted that the Lord is good. This longing to grow up in salvation is growing up in greater and greater understanding of the goodness of God. So even as Nick opened the service, whatever we brought in here, you know, he's never promised us in this life that everything would be good, but that he is always good in everything. And everything will ultimately work for his glory and your joy. So this is the command to long for, to think about the gospel, to contemplate, to meditate, to thank him for it. I mean, what other promises are you waiting for that are better than what he has promised here in these first chapter and a few verses? I mean, what other assurances? What other benefits? What can this world offer you on a platter that is of greater merit, of greater value, of greater beauty than what he has given to us here? There is nothing you'll ever hear more than what he has given to us in Christ. So we're called to long for it. So let me just tease out a couple implications and then I'll close. A couple implications of this longing. First, I think you can see that our growing up in Christ is expected. It's expected. Your growth in Christ is to be expected by you and by your neighbors. So just as it would be an anomaly to have an eight-year-old child who still is not walking, who's still in diapers, who's still on a bottle, that would be a mother or father would have moved years before to say something is wrong. Something is, the, the, you expect weight to be gained, stature to increase, wisdom to grow, capacities to increase. And so the same as infants, 
it is to be expected that you will grow in your faith in Christ. It is not a reality of the scriptures that someone comes to Christ and stays flatlined the whole way. Now, I would say to you that there are periods of great spiritual dryness and great spiritual struggles that we can have in this life. But the idea of never growing in faith and growing in the use of gifts and growing in ministry and growing in forgiveness, that's not seen in the scriptures. Now, I say that because I think some of you here have just accepted, it's kind of a spiritual fatalism that you've accepted, well, I just can't grow. I just haven't grown in years. And you know what? I, I can't change. And I just, it, it's the way I am. You just have to love me the way I am. And or you say something along the lines, you don't know the circumstances I'm under. I mean, I'm under great, great pressure. And, and you may be. Uh, I have great family pressures. I just can't grow in this type of pressure, the circumstances in my life. Or, or uh, other reasons that you may have. I, I want to save you from that because that is, that is leading you to a life of hopelessness and despair. If you don't think you can ever change, I mean, what, what a fate in life. I'll never change. I, I, I mean, it would take the excitement out of life, particularly the Christian life. You say, no, you can expect. You may have awkward periods of time, but even when, you know, all of us have gone through those awkward periods of life, but even those awkward periods of life, we move through them. Change comes. I, I remember when I was, <clears throat> my mother sent me an old um, photograph, a book of pictures that she had when we were kids. And my kids, when they were still in the house, they got a hold of it. And there was a picture of me in second grade in my basketball uniform. And uh, they were not really well-fitting back then. I'll just say that. Uh, this one was clearly meant for another human being than me. And to say that it was a bad hair day would be a whole other thing. But anyways, they saw this picture of me in second grade in, with a basketball team. and I mean, they were on, ox they were on oxygen laughing uh, because it was so awkward, and, and I felt so awkward. I was feeling awkward looking at the picture at how awkward I felt back then. And I remember my mother saying, you're going to grow through this. You're going to change. You, you change through these times of awkwardness. There is change that is expected of us. I mean, we will change spiritually. That's the expectation, that we're going to grow up in our salvation. But not just is growth, growing up in salvation expected, it's commanded. Do you know that? Is that crazy? I love scripture. It's so crazy sometimes. He's commanding us to have desires. He's commanding you to long for him. He's commanding you to do this. Now, in your mind, you may be saying, hey, if it's not there, I can't do it. If I don't have desires, I shouldn't do it. No, don't... I don't have any feelings for him. I can't do it. Yes, you can. You know, feelings are not sovereign. The way you feel about something is not sovereign, nor is it absolute truth. God is sovereign. And if God can say the lame walk, if he can say the deaf hear, if he can say the blind see, if he can say the mute speak, if he can say the dead raise, he can give you desires. He can give you feelings. He can create these things in you. You know, Augustine, the great theologian of the fourth century, said, command what you will but give what you command. Command what you will, but give what you command. Or John Bunyan, another great Puritan of the oh, Bunyan, 17th century. He, he said, uh, yeah, I think it's 17th century. He said this, he wrote a poem, and he was contrasting that the law describes God, but it doesn't give us help to follow God. But the gospel describes God and gives us help. Here's what he says. 
Run, John, run. Or this is at least attributed to him. Run, John, run, the law commands, but gives neither feet nor hands. Far better news the gospel brings. It bids us to fly, and it gives us wings to fly. The power of new birth causes us to fly and causes us to follow. Pray with me from Psalm 86.5. Will you revive us again that we may rejoice in you? Pray that with me. If you have no desires, if you feel just at a dry, dry place and you haven't changed, will you not revive us again, O Lord, that we might rejoice in you? Make that a daily prayer. Ask him. And, and then the third implication of this growing up in salvation is it's a community project. You cannot grow up in salvation apart from one another in here. I'll be speaking to this more about this next week, but you know, so many of us have kind of reduced our spirituality to, I have a Bible study in my house, I listen to a preacher on a podcast, I don't know the preacher, I'm alone in my car, and by these things we're now growing in Christ. Well, those are helpful additions to your spiritual development. But it has to come through your interaction by loving one another and longing with one another. It has to come in the awkwardness of who we are. We're also different from one another. And now you could have seen that in bold relief. If you were here last night, you would see the differences of people. And uh, it, was, it was a treat. But even last night was a testimony to the community of faith where we're sharing life together. That, that this, this admonishing one another, loving one another, forgiving one another, uh, caring for one another, bearing the burdens of one another, all those take place in the community. But, but just if you are one who tends to be inhibited, it's going to be a harder push for you to move in. Uh, if you're tending to be one who is bold and upfront and they want to become your best friend immediately, you know, there might be some, there might be some drawback that you need to exercise, but all of us need to recognize that the growing up in salvation is done together. And I would say it's done through the awkwardness of people that we may be initially drawn back, but it's something in that person that I need to love and it reveals something in me that needs to grow. And if I just isolate myself with lookalikes, there's no growth in that. I feel great about myself and I never change. But it's in the context of the different and the variety that he has brought into this place that helps us grow up in our salvation and appreciation of the gospel. So two commands we have here. These commands flow right out of verses 3 through 12 in chapter 1. These are implications. If you've been born again, and let me say this. I would just ask you, it's probably a good time to say, ask yourselves, have I been born again? Is there evidence of new life in your soul? Are you loving one another? Are you longing to grow up in salvation? Now, I'm not asking that question to to make you feel burdened or to undermine some small fledgling faith. Christ doesn't extinguish a smoldering wick and he doesn't break a bruised reed. He's gentle and I want to be gentle. But, but ask yourself, because this is a good question. Peter kind of does it when he says, if you've tasted that the Lord is good. It's kind of a pause for a minute. It's a pa- Hit the pause button and think, do I taste that he's good? Do I see that he's good to me? Uh, Because if you don't see the evidence of new birth, you might be a very religious person and you might be a very moral person. But the religious and the moral, 
So when Nicodemus came to Jesus, he was a religious, moral man. And Jesus said, you need to be born again. Unless you be born again, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. So religion isn't the means by which we reconcile ourselves to God, but it's God's grace through the rebirth that reconciles us to him through our faith. So if you have not, if you don't see the evidence, then speak with a member of this church and ask them, what is the evidence? That's why I ask you every year, do you love Christ more this year than you did last year? The reason I ask that is to help you see this growing up in salvation. I don't ask you that every week. It's like measuring the height of your child every week. You can't tell. But, but, but you can, over the year, do you love him more? What evidence do you see? There are clear measurements to discern if I love him more. Do, am I drawn more to his word? Am I exercising greater sacrificial love? Do I desire heaven more than this life? Do I repent quicker of my sin? Do I hate my sin more than I did last year? Those are just simple little questions to discern if you love him more. But ask someone next to you, or come even forward after the service, and you can speak with us about it if you don't know. But don't leave today. Have I been born again? And is there fruit present? And if not, then I would encourage you to consider the offer of Jesus Christ that those who are burdened and heavy laden come to me, he says, and I'll give you rest. I'll give you rest. I'll give you peace. I'll give you new life. So let's take a minute now and, and just silently uh, speak to God about these issues. We prayed, speak to us, O Lord, and he has spoken to us in his word. So now let's speak to him through confession or petition. We'll do it silently in a few minutes, and Elder uh, will come up and close us in prayer.